0: You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. This is God's word. Easter Sunday for most pastors is both easy and challenging. On the one hand, it's easy because you already know months ahead you're going to be speaking on the subject of the resurrection that's only appropriate Uh, but it's also very challenging because you start thinking about how do you convince your congregation that they should listen to a story that they have heard many many times before and i believe the answer lies in the first easter sermon that we have recorded here and in other places in the Gospels, but in Matthew 28, because in this sermon, there are two elements that not just make this sermon worth listening to, but make every sermon that has these elements also worth listening to. Uh, So I direct your attention to Matthew chapter 28, and I mentioned there's two elements. Here's the first one, and that is simply that the first Easter sermon is marked by authenticity. In other words, what we hear is valid and verifiable. So you notice the top of your page, you'll see it says Matthew and then the reference. Now, nowhere in the Gospel of Matthew does it state Matthew wrote this Gospel. But very early in church history, from really the earliest inception and transmission of this letter, it was ascribed as coming from Matthew. This is the account, according to Matthew, of Christ's life and ministry. But if we think about the authenticity, we have the authenticity of the New Testament writers. Matthew being the first one we can consider here. As you think about Matthew, think about the fact that he was a tax collector. In other words, Matthew gave up a very lucrative and profitable career, to become a fisher of men, to become an apostle of Jesus Christ. Probably not the best move from a worldly perspective. But then we can include other writers of the New Testament and think of their authenticity, that there was no hidden agenda, hidden motive, a means of getting rich off of promoting something, if in fact it was not true. Jump to the Apostle Paul. Paul, the writer of almost half of the New Testament, was on the fast track to becoming a leading Pharisee, a rabbinic scholar, maybe we could even say an elite religious professor. And yet he, in his own words, says he gave up all of that and ends up losing his life in martyrdom. But yet, according to his own words, he gained everything and lost nothing. What a glimpse into just the authenticity of the New Testament writers. But if authenticity makes this a powerful sermon and should be running through every sermon, then we want to think of not just the authenticity of the New Testament writers, but from Matthew's perspective, what about the authenticity of the witnesses of the resurrection. And Matthew gives us names here. So you notice in verse one of our text, he mentions on this early morning, two specific individuals that are mentioned immediately. So in an age in which we're always now concerned with fake news, there's no way this is fake news. We have names and faces identified by Matthew. And so the first authentic witnesses you see are the two Marys. Mary Magdalene, who, if you remember your your New Testament history, was a woman that was possessed by seven demons. They were cast out. And she becomes one of the many women who were followers of Christ. And then you have Mary, the other Mary here, not Mary, Jesus's earthly mother, but Mary, the mother of James and John. Two of them mentioned, and yet what is most striking about their witness is that its validity is shown by how did they come to the tomb. So you notice in verse 1, it says, they came and went to look at the tomb. Uh, Compare this maybe with Luke's, and we know there were not just the two Marys, there's Salome and maybe some others who came with spices. Uh, and it may be that the preparation and and strips of cloth that would be put on Christ were already done partially, but then you had the start of the Sabbath. And all that needed to stop. And so they may have come now after the Sabbath on this early Sunday morning to continue and finish that process. There is some speculation that according to Jewish tradition, many Jews would go to see the body of their loved one on the third day just to make sure that they were actually dead. And so in this scene, we talk about the validity of the witnesses. Keep in mind, they were going, expecting to see a dead Jesus. They were not going in excitement and anticipation that we'll get there and and he won't be there. But they're going to grieve, to finish that process. And that says something here about the validity of their testimony. They, they were not going and they just kind of fabricated this because they were just so wanted to see it happen so badly. They went with the reality that he is dead. Keep in mind, Luke very carefully tells us, as well as Matthew, prior to this, that these were the women that were at the crucifixion scene. They, they watched him die. They, they knew he, he was dead before their eyes. So, in looking at the validity of the witnesses, that's the first ones that are mentioned by Matthew. But then notice you go down to verse 2, and we have the witness of an angel of the Lord sent from heaven, a divine supernatural messenger with a divine message to deliver. And the scene is very interesting. It says that the the angel is sitting, and Matthew focuses on one angel. Luke and John mention two angels. But you notice in this scene that the angel is is sitting on top of this huge rock. So we've all seen probably pictures of some stone in front of a cave opening. Uh, But this stone would have been on tracks that it was slid across and in place. So it appears that it's slid over, has fallen, And there's this angel on top. But have you ever thought to wonder why? Why was the stone rolled away? And it's not to let Jesus out because he's already risen. It is intended to let the witnesses in to see for themselves this is empty. But Matthew isn't done with the parade of witnesses yet. And so we've seen the Marys who come, this angel who will greet them with an encouraging message. But then notice the third witness is in verse 6. As the angels speak, he is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where they lay him. Here is empirical evidence and proof. Look in there. Do you see anything? And we know this is the strongest piece of evidence yet. That if you wanted to silence this, just produce the body of Christ. Prove it's a lie, prove it's a deception. But in this group of witnesses, once again, we see this evidence there's no one in the tomb and there's no Jesus to be found. But Matthew has one final witness, and that is Christ himself. The women leave the tomb in obedience to the message of the angels, but then you read in verse 9, suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. And I find it almost humorous that he just greets them in, in a normal sort of type of salutation, you know, not, not some flare of elaborate, here I am, no fist bumping. He says, hey, how you doing? Now, in Jewish context, a greeting was very important. When, when you approached a distinguished rabbi, you did not greet him, you waited to see if he would greet you. And then you would respond. What a reversal here, once again, of Christ as he just greets them in a typical manner. But yet being fully God and fully man. What a look at the authenticity of this account. No hidden agendas, but very clear and evident proof. And Jesus repeats the message of the angel. But then you notice as well what happens there in verse 9. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they shall see me. And it's that second part that leads us to the next element that every effective sermon must have which makes this sermon itself a model for us. It mustn't just have authenticity. It's based on truth. But it must also have clarity. It's been popular in sermon preparation to speak of being able to to boil your sermon down to a sentence. And even more than that, if you can boil it down to just a couple of words... That everyone who's leaving can say, that's what the sermon was all about. What well, you can say in this account, in this first Easter sermon, the big idea is summarized in three words. He is risen. That's, that's the core of this sermon. He's risen. He, he's not here. No wonder the early church developed that traditional greeting on Easter morning. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. That's what it's all about. But looking at this scene a little bit more closely, you see those three simple words in verse 6, he is risen, summarize the gospel for us, summarize the intent and teaching so important in Christianity. So important that the Apostle Paul, in writing to a church in Corinth, would say to them that if you want to run with a hypothetical situation, what if the resurrection never happened? And Paul says, you know what? If the resurrection never happened, preaching is useless. Your present faith that your sins are forgiven is meaningless. Your hope that those who have died before you and are in a better place and in God's presence is void and nullified. In other words, you have absolutely nothing without the resurrection. How can you get any less clear about the intelligibility and the reasonableness of what it means to say Jesus Christ is not here He is risen. But if a sermon is clear, if it has clarity, just as I'm saying this first Easter sermon was very clear what the message was, that they took it and they ran with it. They didn't run saying, well, I'm not sure, what are we supposed to say to people? I think for all of us, we've probably found that sometime in the middle of the afternoon on a Sunday, We may have a hard time remembering. What was the sermon about? I often ask my students on Monday morning, somewhere along the way, uh, do you remember anything about the sermon? Uh, And I sometimes say to them, "I'll, I'll, you know, I think your pastor would be glad to hear this. Where sometimes they're not even sure if they can tell me the book, let alone what was the main point, other than, well, God wants you to be holy. I think it was Mark Twain who once was not a religious man, went to church, and he was asked later on what, he, what was the sermon about, and he said, I really don't remember, but I think it was the pastor does not like sin. You know, so vague, so general, that really has no significant impact or application. So you see in this scene that the clarity of this message leads to a face-to-face encounter with the living God. And that should always be the way when we hear God's word taught authentically and with clarity that we are confronted with being in God's presence. You notice something that Matthew tells us in verses two through four. In verse two, Matthew is the only writer who indicates a second earthquake. That you have that one that happened when Christ is crucified But now Matthew says that on this morning, there's a second earthquake that happens. Whether that's in unison with the angel coming at that moment. But if you think about this, throughout the Old Testament, things like this indicate what? The physical manifestation of God's presence and power. So anywhere you're reading in the Old Testament that the earth shakes, there's fire, there's lightning, there's smoke. Right away, a light should go on and say to you, God showed up. God's presence is among his people. But you notice as well in this description, the reaction of this presence of God, first among the Roman soldiers. And so you notice in verse 4, it says, the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. What an ironic scene, these seasoned Guards or soldiers were placed there to to watch the corpse of Christ. And yet, when in the presence of God, whom they do not know, and would be a terrifying thought, that they themselves become as corpse, frozen, terrified. But then you have also the reaction of the women. And notice that we are told that the women also were afraid. John Bunyan does an excellent job of talking about the fear of God in two different ways. That the ungodly has a fear of God which is dangerous at certain times because it will drive them from God. They will be terrified in his presence. And in a sense, you see that among the Roman soldiers here in what follows. They they don't know what to make of this. This is a presence and a power much greater than Nero or any emperor or commander that they're used to. But the women also have a fear of God. The exact same word is used. But the difference is their fear is one we see results in reverence and awe and they are comforted because both the angel and Jesus Christ say to the women, do not be afraid. You don't have that said to the Roman soldiers. You don't have that said to anyone who is in opposition to God. So when we speak of the clarity of a sermon, the clarity of this first Easter message, it it brought you face-to-face to face with God, but as always, a good sermon, a clear, a clear sermon, leaves each one with two possible responses, and we see that in this very first early morning sermon here, because you notice what happens to the Roman soldiers, because in verses eleven through fifteen. Matthew tells us. Here they are. They have, they have seen and witnessed something that is beyond human explanation. And they, they, they run. And they tell the leaders about this. And the plot is hatched to, we're just going to pay you guys off. In other words, you tell people you fell asleep. And it's interesting to consider that their response to this scene, to being confronted with the truthfulness of who God is, is to deny the undeniable, to reject the irrevocable. They will live instead with a lie. They will go through whatever length their life is lying about what really happened. They've profited For the moment, they've been given some sum of money to do this. But when asked about this, they instead will say, yeah, I don't know what happened. A bunch of us kind of fell asleep there. Others will kind of cover for them. They won't be executed as they should have been if that's exactly what happened. But then you have the response of the women. And as we know later on, the response of the disciples in time to the news of the resurrection. It says that the, the women clasped Jesus' feet and worshiped him. That they, they seized onto him. They held onto his feet. Now we know that Jesus would later say in one of the other gospels uh, that, that he needs to go to the Father to receive his full glorified body. But their immediate reaction here is to, to fall down and not just kneel, but the implication is that they worshiped him. That these same women who saw him die are very clear that this is the same Jesus. This is not a look alike, it's not some stunt double. This is the Jesus who we know. This is the Jesus who said, and we didn't believe him that he would come back. They would rise on the third day. But there's something else that's fascinating. Jesus says in verse 10, go and tell my brothers. Not just my disciples. And Mark reminds us that in these words, Jesus was very clear to say, make sure you tell Peter. But when he says, go and tell my brothers, you want to think about, all right, so you have the disciples, the apostles. You also have other followers of Christ. In other words, go and tell whoever you see that I will meet them in Galilee. Now think back to what transpired at the cross. The brothers included those who deserted him. They all scattered, not just Peter, but they all ran in opposite directions. Jesus says nothing like, well, go and tell those who betrayed me. But he says, go and tell my brothers. And isn't that what we would want to say would be our response to the authenticity and clarity of a sermon? That we'd be moved to worship God in a much deeper way. That we'd leave saying, here's a message, here's a truth that I cannot keep to myself that it should change me as it did these women and countless millions since this day who have come by faith to embrace the message of the resurrection. Clearly this first Easter sermon was transformative because it breathed authenticity, and clarity. It decisively declared, Jesus Christ came, he died on the cross, he rose again three days later, and he appeared to many, verifying his claim. I think if you look at this first Easter sermon, that's a good sermon. That's what preaching should be all about. And if we read God's word, and listened to sermons and said, Is it authentic and does it have clarity? Then we would find that every sermon should be worth listening to, whether or not it's Easter Sunday. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we should also be changed and transformed by the certainty of the resurrection. May we not just sing about it. May we not just, in our own hearts, be comforted by it. But may we, like these women and disciples of old, take that message and tell it to all that we see, all who need to hear it. Because we are certain that your word never goes out without accomplishing its intended purpose. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.